Uh, today we're going to be looking at uh, Leviticus chapter 25 and Luke chapter 4. And while you guys are getting there, um, this morning it dawned upon me that I always take the opportunity for, uh, anytime they let me up here, to give some uh, Presbyterianism 101. So I think this is like Presbyterianism 101 session 3. Um, I am a ruling elder. My name's Dan Phillips. Today, earlier, you saw Elder Ed Kelly and also Josh Cools just prayed. We're all ruling elders. In our form of government, that means that we are responsible for guaranteeing that the Word of God is preached. One of the things that we do is examine the preaching of the Word, and we're held accountable for that, um, for your sake. In some Reformed and Presbyterian traditions, they'll even have a whole bunch of the elders sitting in a special place watching the preacher. And I've always thought that was a little weird, but uh, the point isn't to give them a special place of seating and therefore be under the condemnation of James, although that's possible. Uh, the point of that is these are the people guaranteeing that the word of God is being preached. So now you guys are wondering, why are you here? Um, on occasion, ruling elders, one of their tasks is they fill the pulpit. And so I'm filling the pulpit today on behalf of the session. Uh, and the session, of course, is holding me accountable, just as we do everyone that comes in the pulpit. Uh, typically in our tradition, uh, we would want to see someone in the pulpit that is licensed. Tony, if he's here, just passed his licensure exams. Good for Tony. Um, so, yeah, that's typically what we do. But today, uh, while pastor's gone, I'll be filling the pulpit. Presbyterian 101 is over for the day. Uh, we're looking at Leviticus chapter 25. We'll also be looking at a text from Luke chapter 4. Um, I'll start reading in Leviticus 25, verses 8 and following. Actually, here we go. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 through 18. This is the very word of God. You're also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven sa so you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely forty-nine years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee, and you shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it's a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. Of this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend, or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he's selling to you, so that you shall wrong, not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God." You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to carry them out, 
that you may live securely on the land. Keep your marker in Leviticus 25. We'll be returning, but we're going to jump to Luke chapter 4, verse 16 for our New Testament reading. And it just hit me. I'm probably not reading from the ESV. Is that true? I'm reading from the NASB. My apologies. Luke 4.16. And I'll fix that. I'll read from the ESV on this one. Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus picks up on a similar theme. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard about you, what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in the Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they'd heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill of their town, on which their town was built, so they could throw him off down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Okay. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which teaches us what we're to believe and how we're to serve you. We ask that this time would be profitable to that end. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. And to that end, we pray specifically that your spirit would open our ears and open our hearts and open my mouth, that we might see Christ in his glory, in his kingdom, and learn how to invite and show others what that kingdom's like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after man's fall into sin and misery, the idea of an ideal world has been ever-present. Whether we're talking about Plato's Republic or whether we fast forward to H.G. Wells and look at his vision of utopia, a modern utopia, this is something that has always been on the forefront of our minds. Even Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, as the pastor always reminds us, uh, you know, it's his generation, not mine, we've got to get back to the garden. Um, that's the sort of concern that man has. How can we provide equality and justice and good living conditions? Those kinds of concerns, they are at the forefront of many of our best thinkers as the human race. How can we achieve that? Perhaps the best-known utopian system is 
that of Marxism, particularly his communist vision. Perhaps that's the most successful utopian vision in the last century. And this vision of the world uh, has much in praise of it. That is the idea that there's equality, the idea that nothing's lacking, very attractive ideas. Now, uh, there's some problems in terms of how that comes to pass and how it works out. Um, but it's in its root form, it's an attractive idea, okay? This vision of property being regulated by the state shaped the future of some great countries. We see Soviet Union and China, former Soviet Union, uh, you know, Cuba, North Korea, maybe not so great countries, but the point is it's, it's, this idea has been picked up and practiced, okay? And the question we have to ask is the goal, has that harmony been achieved? And I'd submit to you, you know, this isn't a political science lecture, but uh, often it hasn't, okay? As a matter of fact, most consistent communist systems are moving towards mixed economies. You know, look at China. They've dumped, uh, you know, their absolute obeisance to communism and they toy, have, have toyed with capitalism for a long time. But our question here is regardless of how consistent they are or not, has the stated results ever been achieved for any of them? And the idea is no. All of them are slowly and steadily disappearing you know, dispersing with Marx's vision of utopia. Now, don't understand me. I don't stand before you today in an effort to sell you a particular economic or ideological, uh, economic or uh, political ideology. I, I'm really not concerned about that. I'm concerned about Christ and his kingdom. But I do want you to see that utopianism, whether it's our utopianism, whatever that is, whatever you think is near and dear and wonderful to you and it's going to make the world wonderful, or somebody else's utopianism, I want you to see that utopianism as conceived of by man results in failure. Man striving after the good will never come to pass because he lacks the power to achieve that which he sets out to do. Human nature gets in the way. Our laziness gets in the way. All kinds of things get in the way. Sin frustrates our every step. Now, our text today points out for us not man's utopian idea, but actually God's way during the theocracy with the children of Israel, God's way of establishing how people are not going to be treated unjustly, how people are not going to be oppressed, how people are not going to be found without housing or care long term. This is God's plan for a just society by means of observing the Jubilee. Now, before we examine God's plan for a just, harmonious society by means of jubilee observance, we've got to recall Israel's situation right here with our text. This is the situation where Moses spoke to them from Sinai. Remember that Leviticus comes after Exodus and before Joshua. So first, we see that the Israelites had been redeemed from their previous bondage in Egypt. God miraculously saves them by many signs and mighty acts in the Exodus. But it's not only that they're saved from something, they're saved to something. They're a forward-looking people. They're on their way to Canaan. They're on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey, the land in which they would drink from wells that they did not dig. 
and that they would enjoy wine from vineyards that they did not plant. It would be a land of rest, a land where symbolically that connection between the sweat of your brow and the benefits of your labor is broken, a land that things are provided perhaps without the curse, at least symbolically. Now God, the mighty Savior, has redeemed this people. He's taking to them that place, and he's instructing them how we how they were to keep his covenant in the land. God was soon to divide the land amongst the 12 tribes and disperse it to them as a permanent inheritance, an eternal possession if they keep the covenant, if you keep reading in Leviticus 25. Now, one way in which God does this is he commands them to observe the Jubilee year. He wants to foster harmony amongst themselves and guarantee the future blessings of their covenant God through Jubilee, through Sabbath, in a sense. So this Jubilee idea, what is it? It's basically just the idea of Sabbath, okay? And we're going to unpack the concept of Sabbath all the way up until we get to the idea of Jubilee year. So the Jubilee year is rooted in the idea of Sabbath. Genesis 2-2 tells us that after the Lord God created the heavens and the earth, he rested on the seventh day. And this idea of a weekly Sabbath observance was expanded into the concept of Sabbath years, in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 4, it reads thus, The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath unto the Lord, you shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So this Sabbath idea is further expanded. So we've seen Sabbath day, and we get Sabbath uh, year, and that's going to be expanded to a jubilee year. So we're going to do a little bit of math here, okay? Just simple products. This idea is expanded to the jubilee year, what we might call a Sabbath year of Sabbath years. So every seventh day is a Sabbath, every seventh year is a Sabbath. Now we're going to have every seventh chunk of sevens is a Sabbath, and that's called the jubilee year. It's seven times seven years. The 49th year, the product of seven times seven years is the jubilee. So why is it given? Why is it given? And this is a fascinating, gracious provision by God for his people. Bad things happen. Children, you've experienced that, and you will experience more of that. Some of us have experienced more than our fair share, we might feel, of bad things. But life is rough, and sometimes you make bad economic decisions, sometimes health problems. There's a myriad of things that could cause you to go poor, cause you to need to sell your land, even up to and including selling your labor as a slave in Old Testament Israel, those kinds of things. Not a slave, but to permanently sell your labor but not permanently, and we're going to see that in the text. Now, this Jubilee year, the whole idea is to make it so long-term God's people are not without land. Long-term God's people are not serving someone else. Look with me at verse 14, and uh, then we'll jump to 39 and 40. Notice this concern for equity brought up again and again in our passage today. Verse 14, if you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Okay? The idea of justice and equity is in mind. 
Verse 39 and 40. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service, but he shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. So in this 49th year, or 50th year, and they just round it up is what it is when they do that. Um, this 50th year, this Jubilee year, is established in order to protect God's people from enslavement and from gross intergenerational inequity. God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt, but he will not permit them to be slaves by any other but himself. Verse 55, For the sons of Israel are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God alone will exercise lordship over his people, Israel. So the Jubilee year then guarded against a family's ultimate ruin by providing a clean start every Jubilee, which would likely occur once in everyone's life. For the most part, most people would experience a Jubilee year. And that would be a great jump start to your personal economy, to having land, to having opportunities. Now, how would this Jubilee year be kept and what would it do? So we've seen in the passage at the Jubilee, all who sold their labor to another due to financial misfortune, they'd be freed of their debts. So on the 49th year, you might have a whole lot of debt. The 50th year hits and those debts are forgiven. They're done. Okay. Secondly, verse 10, they could return to their ancestral home that was allotted to them after the conquest of Canaan. Right? These lands are supposed to be an eternal inheritance for the people of Israel. Should they be faithful to the covenant God? Well, they'll get their lands back. The 50th year was to be a rest where the Israelites neither reaped nor sowed. It was a Sabbath year. In addition, the Jubilee year was to dictate how you lived those, those other 48 years. Those other 48 years informed or were informed by the coming of the Jubilee. The fact that the Jubilee is there and it's an ever-present reality informs the way that you conduct your life. Notice this. If a man sold his labor, he could sell it for a maximum of 48 years, and then he'd reduce the cost of his land or labor according to how many years remain until next Jubilee. It would influence every economic decision you made should you be uh, at the end of misfortune and you had to sell your labor or your land. That jubilee year would inform your present. Observance of the jubilee year would also help protect the inheritance allotted to each Israelite. It would guarantee that the 12 tribes would perpetually remain in the land as individual tribes as long as they kept the jubilee year. So in short, and there's much more we could say about this, but in short, this is thumbnail sketch of what the jubilee year is. It's the Sabbath principle extended out, okay? This is God's plan, as it were, for equity in ancient Israel. The Israelites had the guarantee of God's word that if they kept God's covenant, he would bless them. Yet if they disobeyed the covenant, all of those curses that you read in Deuteronomy 28, and it seems to go on forever, all the curses in Deuteronomy 28 will fall on them. We saw earlier that I brought up, uh, you know, Marx's communist utopian vision and I just wanted to point out that striving for the good as conceived of any utopian vision is frustrated by sin and by mankind's inability to put into effect the things that they imagine 
But our question before us today is how does God's good plan for Jubilee, how does God's good plan for Sabbath observance stretched out over a generation, how does that pan out? How does that fare? Well, Amos chapter 2, verse 6 says this. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Evidently, in Israel, slavery was practiced all too well. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. Real estate speculation is not a new thing. Okay? People were linking lands and lands together. And then lastly, 2 Chronicles 20, uh, 36, 21 tells us that the land did not hurt, didn't enjoy her Sabbaths until the exile. So, be curious uh, to find out, and it appears that it never did happen, uh, it'd be curious to see how many Jubilee years actually were celebrated, okay? Even with God's good plan, we see that there's something wrong with humanity. We see that the Jubilee's not kept. We see that those opportunities to practice uh, righteousness and be uh, people who are for equity, etc., is not practiced even by God's people. So even Israel, with God's own plans for harmony and equity, still fails to bring about a land where harmony, equity, and social justice are a reality. Even with the jumpstart of a goodly land and righteous laws from God himself, Israel fails. Their sinful disobedience disqualified them from receiving the blessings that the Jubilee pointed to. And this is the same problem that we find with human utopias. Man is sinful and incapable of affecting the sort of positive change that he'd like in his world. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, what is crooked cannot be made straight. God's people that he brought out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, were in effect enslaved, and that by their brothers. There's scant biblical evidence to suggest that even one jubilee ever happened. Israel, the freedman, had become Israel, the slave trader and giant plantation owner. Now, I brought up Marx's utopian vision earlier because the Marxists have really had a field day with this passage. And some of you, upon listening to me, you're scratching your head, too. Um, sort of liberation theology type folks have really enjoyed these types of passages. They enjoy the Exodus theme in general. But... Um, they, find, they think they find it to be in accord with their system of thought. And the question would be that this distribution of wealth God ordered amongst the Israelites does bear a resemblance to communism, does it not? Well, of course, no. Leviticus says no. God is not interested in a geopolitical uprising around the world in which the Jubilee is observed. This is seen in the fact that God permits enslavement of those outside the camp of Israel. Now, we don't have time to go into the whole purpose of Israel, uh, but let it be known that Israel serves as a type and a shadow of future things to come. And it is not a blueprint from which we draw our government structures. Certainly there's general equity there that needs to be observed, but that's not what we see here. And slavery, although it's illegal within Israel, is practiced 
outside of it, and uh, even people outside of Israel are uh, made slaves. So Old, is, Old Testament, that's just to point out, look, it's, it's not what the Marxists are pointing it out to be. Okay, um, Old Testament Israel fails to maintain the freedom of God's covenant people. They failed by not maintaining or by not observing the form of the Jubilee, and due to their disobedience to the covenant, they failed to receive the content which the Jubilee was but a symbol. It's but a symbol of the freedom from bondage to sin and the inheritance of a land in which there's never any toil from the bread you eat, a land of rest. Indeed, the land itself in Israel was a picture of a heavenly land. Turn with me now to Luke 4. The New Testament affirms that that is indeed what's going on here. That is indeed the final meaning of the Jubilee. Luke 4, 17 through 21, again, recall the context of Luke. This is shortly after the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, just after his baptism and temptation at the hand of Satan. Luke's record of Jesus' temptation shows us that Jesus is taking upon himself Israel's unfinished business. The three tests that Jesus undergoes in the desert are tests that Israel underwent in the desert. Whereas Israel failed in all of their wilderness testing, Jesus succeeds. Jesus enters into cosmic battle with Satan and accomplishes what no other son of God had. Adam, the son of God, according to Matthew, Matthew, uh, Adam, the son of God, fails in his temptation. Israel, the son of God, Israel's called the son of God when you look in the Exodus and, you know, Moses, in the Exodus account, God says, Israel is my son. Israel, the son of God, fails in their temptation. But we see in Luke 4 that Jesus, the son of God, flourishes during his trial. Luke is showing us in Luke 4 that Jesus is the true Israel. He's God's true son, the one who's doing what national Israel failed to do. Uh, 417 of Luke. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the passage that Jesus reads from is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And it's an allusion to the Jubilee, okay? The language there is Jubilee language. I'll read that real quick. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's, uh, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance to our God. Notice he doesn't go with the vengeance to our God there, but that's where he stops reading. Um, these similar concerns for liberty in Leviticus and the release of captives in Isaiah speak to the same sort of cultic referent. It's talking about the same thing in the worship and history of Israel in terms of what they're directed to do. 
They're both referring to the Jubilee year. It's also the same word for liberty in Isaiah 61.1 that you'll find in Leviticus 25.10. Here's another example, Ezekiel 46.16-18. through 18. Thus said the Lord God, If a prince give a gift to any of his sons, the inheritance thereof shall be his sons. It shall be their possession as by an inheritance. But if he gives a gift from his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty. Then he shall return it to the prince. His inheritance shall be only his sons. It shall belong to them. The prince shall not take from the people's inheritance, thrusting them out of their position, possession. He shall give his son's inheritance from his own possession, so that my people will not be scattered, anyone from his possession. So this theme in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4, they're both referring to the Jubilee, to this Jubilee year. Jesus, in saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is asserting that the favorable year of the Lord has come. Jesus is arguing that he in his person and work has ushered in the jubilee of God. But how does he usher in this jubilee? If you were one of the Jewish hearers that tried to push Jesus off a cliff shortly after reading this passage and then rubbing salt in their wounds by telling them, oh yeah, it was always foreigners that the prophets went to to save because you're all are stubborn. Um, if you were one of those hearers, you would have looked around you and you would have said, the Romans are still in power. My ancestral lands have not been returned to me. My friend Henry, who became a slave, I don't think Henry's a good Jewish name. Uh, my friend who became a slave, he is still enslaved. As far as their eyes were concerned, there was nothing jubileeish about this jubilee that Jesus is proclaiming happens right then and there. Matter of fact, it appears that nothing has changed in Israel. Notice how in Luke 4, there's no talk of land. Jesus is speaking of a spiritual fulfillment of the Jubilee, and it's enacted in his own person as the true Israel and not by observing a land Jubilee. The land was merely a picture of a greater reality. The land is nothing other than a picture of heaven to come. And that's what Jesus is doing in his earthly ministry. He is going about in the Gospels and he is telling us what the kingdom is like and he's showing us by his miracles. This is what it looks like. The dead are raised. The poor are fed. The Gospel is preached. That is what Jesus is doing with the Jubilee. So Jesus, the one upon whom the Spirit dwells and abides, was fit for this peculiar task of bringing a far greater miracle to pass than the physical manumission of slaves or the reordering of some land. Jesus came to proclaim a gospel that loosed sinners from the bonds of guilt and sin and death. The deliverance that Jesus ushers in is the greatest deliverance conceivable, the deliverance from sin and Satan himself. The deliverance from those things that make all of our utopias make all of our labors frustratable and ultimately frustrated. Hence, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he announces the Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord. In Luke, Jesus himself sums up his ministry in Jubilee terms. 
In Luke 4, we've seen that the gospel is preached to the poor and the captives are released. In Luke 7.22, Jesus responds to John the Baptist's question. You remember John? He's, he's like, yeah, I think this is the guy, but, but why don't I just send some disciples to Jesus and ask, are, are you sure you're the guy? Well, Jesus' answer to John is, to John's disciples anyhow, he says, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is making an explicit reference to the Jubilee. This is what Jesus is about. He's ushered in the Jubilee spiritually. Yet, Jesus is no Gnostic. Jesus is not arguing for some ethereal, non-physical redemption. He will bring that physical redemption to a close. He will bring that physical earthly aspect to fulfillment. He will bring judgment too. that second part of Isaiah 61 that I was reading. Turn your attention, please, to Leviticus 25, verse 9. It was St. Augustine, this is just pastor would say this is free. Um, It was St. Augustine that, you know, said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And that's what we see going on here. Leviticus 25.9, you shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. Now, this ram's horn It's called the jubil. That's where we get the word jubilee. It comes from the name of the horn in Hebrew. This horn was blown in order to announce the jubilee year. It was sounded on Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, the day on which Israel's sins were atoned for by means of a scapegoat. After atonement was made for the people, they would enter into the jubilee. Now notice the same pattern is present in our age. Jesus himself offers up his very own body, on as the Yom Kippur, the sacrifice of atonement, once and for all, and he's obtained eternal redemption for us on the cross. All the lambs on slain Jewish altars found their reality and fulfillment in Christ, the Lamb of God, slain for sinners. After Christ has made atonement for his people and applied his benefits to all the elect, a horn will be blown, and it'll signify the jubilee. 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle says, We will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for a trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That is the second part. Jesus, as a down payment, when he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your midst, it is, as we come to the Savior in faith, but we look forward to a day when that trumpet will sound. And the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Following that, you'll be greeted by Jesus with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the Father's rest. In keeping with the Sabbath imagery of Jubilee, then, we're to understand the Jubilee as heaven in its fullness. This is what the land of Israel's Jubilee was, a type of, and nothing else. In terms of Hebrews 4, 
The Jubilee is the eternal Sabbath rest of God that he calls us to enter into. In terms of Revelation 21, it's the new heavens and the new earth, a sanctified physical land where God dwells with his people and lavishes upon them the richest of fare, where he is our God and we are his people in a final sense. In terms of Revelation 22.3, it's the land where there's no curse. It's the land where man eats apart from the sweat of his brow. It's the land where there are no thorns in our crops. Friend, if you come here today and you're not a Christian and you have not experienced this freedom, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. So I'd encourage you, enter into God's jubilee. Cast off the idea that you will somehow please God on your own terms. Fact of the matter is, guys, we can't even live up to our own terms. We make expectations for us in terms of goals for the work week, dieting plans, New Year's resolutions, and we rubber stamp them as good plans. We can't even keep our plans. Our plans are frustrated even by ourselves. Our best efforts in relationships, our best efforts at work and creating things, they're frustrated and frustratable. Cast off the idea that you'll please God on your own terms if you can't even please yourself. Your own efforts at pleasing God a pile to, uh, amount to a pile of debt. If Old Testament Israel couldn't enter into a mere earthly model of a heavenly rest with God's guidance, how do you think you're going to achieve heavenly rest on your own? Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, never lose sight of Jesus as the true Israel who brings the jubilee to fulfillment. As you've been justified by faith and accepted into God's household, continue to walk by faith. As you seek to daily die to yourself and live a life of repentance and faith, do not forget Christ. Christ is the Redeemer even of your sorry Christian life. Christ is your Redeemer. Flee to Christ, for he is still your only hope. Now, in closing, uh, we need to ask, does this ethic apply to us? Shall we observe jubilee years? Now, we saw that the jubilee was part and parcel of the covenant that God made with Moses. It was the ethic by which Israel was to live when they entered the land. It was good and proper for them to observe it. It came from God himself. The plan is faultless. So that leaves us to wonder, if the plan's faultless, if it's from God, ought we not seek to get a jubilee year on the ballot? November's coming. If this is God's word, shouldn't we incorporate this into our political system to achieve civic peace and harmony? Beloved, I would submit to you that such a move or even the desire to do so would be senseless. Our covenantal relationship with God is different than that of Old Testament Israel in many respects. Israel had the guaranteed blessing of God upon their labors if they're faithful to the covenant. Israel has the guaranteed blessing of God apart from their labors by following the covenant. God will provide food for a Sabbath year while you are not out sowing and reaping. The land will provide. It's amazing. It's a sure thing. This is the sort of feeling you get when you come to the Old Testament wisdom literature. 
In Proverbs, you read it and you're like, there's going to be a one-to-one correlation. If I'm obedient, I'll be blessed. I'm obedient, I'll be blessed. Yet after Israel enters the land and they break the covenant repeatedly, they experience life in this sin-cursed world just like the rest of the earth. As Ecclesiastes teaches, their obedience did not necessarily translate it into one-to-one correlation between blessings and curses or good deeds and blessings and wicked deeds and punishment. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes and in your own life, you see that the wicked often are blessed. The richest men in the world, the richest people in the world, are often wicked. Those who have the most earthly blessings are often spiritual paupers. Jesus pronounces to Israel in Luke 23, your house has left you desolate, referring to the temple. Jesus is telling Old Testament Israel that the Old Testament cultists, the, uh, the Mosaic covenant in relation to the land is done. Jesus says, I'm leaving your temple. God departs from Israel. And in AD 70, we see that that desolate house is destroyed. The Romans come and they destroy the temple, and it's not been rebuilt. And we shouldn't hope for it to be rebuilt, beloved. The covenant that God made with Israel was broken by Israel, and it can't be taken up again. It can't be jump-started, period. We do not have a covenant with God that promises blessing upon our land if we obey. Now, it's true. In general, in God's creation, obedience to the covenant Lord is a good thing. So things like waiting until you're married to procreate, is a great idea. It's provable scientifically that it's a good thing, right? Uh, it provides order to society. It's a, it's a good thing, okay? But that is not to say that uh, you know, we could pick up the Jubilee and say, we're going to practice this and it's going to make everything fine. Are you better than Israel? No, we don't have a covenant with God that promises blessing upon our land if we obey If we did observe Jubilee now, God would not provide us food while the land was fallow. We'd starve. It would be an exercise in stupidity to observe the Jubilee now because Jesus, the true Israel, has observed the Jubilee. Jesus has spiritually fulfilled the Jubilee for his people. Those who trust in Christ have been released from the bondage of the world, the flesh, and the devil because they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They've laid their eyes upon Christ. And as they've done so, They perceive God's word and they behold Christ and he becomes their hope. Christ has also promised a day wherein he will physically fulfill the Jubilee as well. He has established a land of rest where his people will enjoy food and drink without the spread of their own brow. Christ has reversed the curse and drawn our eyes away from any earthly inheritance and earthly enslavement. He's brought us to be content in him because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. And that the things of this world and the things of it and the world itself are passing away. This is why when you read the Apostle Paul, it's strange to see how content he is with plenty or want. Think about that. Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's an Israelite. He has a stake in the game concerning the Jubilee. But this is what Paul says. You don't see him complaining about ancestral lands. You don't see him complaining about bondage of life in prison. 
Oh, if I could just sit in jail until the Jubilee comes, I'll get out of here, those bad Romans. No, just listen to Paul's godly self-contentment for a moment. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know what it's to live like in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him, that's Christ, who strengthens me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So, beloved, my question for you is, are you content with Christ? The world, and perhaps even our own idle factory-making minds, is always busy trying to create a utopia that will usher in a golden age of peace, prosperity, and unity. For you, rest assured, Christian, the ideal world is coming and has even come to you by union with Christ. And you even participate in that today, in worship, that you are here, that you're receiving God's word. Scripture tells us in Hebrews that innumerable saints and angels are here as you come to worship in Mount Zion. In a special way, you are spiritually seated in heaven and tasting of eternal realities. That's the ideal world of which you're a citizen. Rejoice in your present freedom in Christ, for even now your sins are forgiven. Though you might be enslaved or imprisoned by men, could be credit, could be obligations, could be many things. Even though you might be enslaved by men, you are the Lord's free men. Rejoice in your adopted hometown in Christ. Now you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places and you will adore him more fully in the age to come. So as we look at the Jubilee, know that you shall be a participant in it. And Lord's Day by Lord's Day, Sabbath day by Sabbath day, you get a taste of what that ultimate and final Jubilee will be. It is the end of all things. It is the calling to be who you are, to truly glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the Jubilee points towards in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst, and you will see it fulfilled in your reality, both by your eyes of faith now and when Jesus comes. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word and all of the strings and threads that come at us from the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and we wonder how the story is going to unfold. We wonder where we found in that story. You tell us through the person of Jesus that he has come, and he has done what no other son of God has done. He has fully kept your law. He has fully fulfilled your law, and he comes and he graciously gifts all of that to us as we receive it by faith. So we pray, Father, that you would grant us faith that we might see these realities and that we might live them in such a way that they would organize our thoughts and our actions this week and every day of our lives. Help us to invite others to the Jubilee. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.